Dementia in Practice is recorded and produced in multiple locations. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the various lands on which we meet. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and celebrate the diversity of Aboriginal peoples, their ongoing cultures and connections to the lands and waters of Australia. The two together is quite predictive of, of driver safety and obviously there's thresholds where someone is deemed to be completely safe, someone is deemed to be completely unsafe and then there's a grey area which indicates further testing. Hi, it's Hilton Coppy here and welcome back to Dementia in Practice, the podcast that's made by GPs for GPs and other health professionals who'd like to learn more about dementia. As always, Dr. Marita Long and Dr. Steph Daly from Dementia Training Australia are with me. And today we're going to be talking about driving assessments for people living with dementia. Yeah, that's always a tricky one, isn't it? It's one that uh, at our workshops always comes up. You know, GPs are always keen to learn more about driving and um, how you manage that for people who are living with dementia. And whilst we say that a diagnosis of dementia doesn't necessarily mean you can't drive today, we do often say that it does mean that your driving days are likely to be numbered. And when you think about it and you think about what's happening in, in the brain with somebody living with dementia, it is affecting lots of different cognitive processes. And so there may be times when driving a car perhaps isn't really the safest thing to do. And that's when we start to look at things like other options for people and, and when they might be thinking about stopping driving their car. So to help guide us through this minefield, I spoke with occupational therapist Matt Underwood. He's a uh, an accredited driving assessor, OT driving assessor in northern New South Wales. And we spoke about how an OT driving assessment works and how we as GPs can arrange them for people living with dementia. Dementia process is far more than uh, just an issue with memory. I guess in terms of the, the driving task, it's quite a complex task and it involves a series of um, interrelated cognitive processes. So as an OT driving assessor, we'll be looking at um, a person's ability to observe, to demonstrate appropriate planning and judgment, uh, the physical control. Um, and a lot of these things are underpinned by fundamental cognitive processes such as attention, which is sometimes known as working memory, um, the ability to switch between attention, which is known as um, divided attention, the speed of information processing is a, is a really big one. And as you can imagine, uh, in a population with dementia, their ability to process information quickly is compromised. And then on top of that, you can have, um, if you put issues with vision and sensory function, uh, into the mix as well, then you have you, you have a complex picture, which um, sometimes is a bit of a line ball when it comes to assessing if someone's safe on the road. And that's why the OT um, driving assessment is quite a comprehensive battery of assessments, both before we get in the car and then when we're in the, in the vehicle doing the actual on-road. If I were to refer a person to you, Matt, who's got cognitive impairment or dementia, uh, for a driving assessment, what sort of things would you do? Uh, or what should I tell the person that is going to happen when they come to see you? 
I would probably initially look at the, you know, minimising anxiety impact and, and just discuss that it's actually a rehab process, not a, I guess, what is often viewed as a, as a, as a punitive or absolute driving test that they pass or fail because the actual, um, often the outcome is not a pass or fail straight up. It's, it's often a series of uh, lessons, which we will actually call driver rehab sessions to actually determine whether someone has the capacity to learn to incorporate a few strategies to actually bring them up to the threshold where we deem them to be safe. Fundamentally, it, the driving assessment has a pre-on-road component and it also then has an on-road and it is a, it is a rehab process. So that's probably the, the key information to let your patients know. That's so helpful, Matt, because there's, um, as I'm sure you're aware, there's a lot of stigma in the community around dementia and a lot of fear. And that's uh, like within the community and also within the GP population. And uh, one of the fears is that uh, people are going to be put in a nursing home. And the other huge fear for people uh, and stigma around dementia is that they're going to have their license taken away from them. As you say, this punitive thing, pass fail. And that concept that you've raised about OT driving assessors being not just assessors, but sort of enablers and, and rehab providers in a way, uh, sort of reframes it in a much more positive way. So could you perhaps tell us a little how you would work with someone with dementia in, uh, say, stage one, in the not so long after a diagnosis? How might you work with someone when they come to see you? And then how would you work with them to help them continue to driving if they have that capacity? Look, initially I'd say this is a rehab process and uh, my focus is on assisting you to continue to drive where possible. If the outcome isn't that, I'll have some very good reasons for, for it, which we'll, you know, which we'll go through. So, so if someone comes to see me, um, it'll normally start with a phone call and that initial phone call or phone calls is actually quite an informative process as well because often if someone is actually, you know, does have a significant dementia, they, they don't always come to me with a diagnosis either. Once we have that organised, I will generally see someone in the community, um, sometimes clinic-based, sometimes community-based, uh, depending on where they live, uh, et cetera. And prior to going out to see them, um, I will actually check in with the RMS medical unit to make sure they have an active licence. We can't take people on road if they don't have an active licence. And there is a small proportion of people who OT shop, OT driver assessment, driver assessor shop. So we do need to make sure that they have been cleared medically. It's good to know there's not just doctor shoppers, but there's <laughs> OT shoppers as well. Yes, yeah. yes. Once we've got all that sorted out and we actually start the assessment, we, we start with a pre-on-road assessment so that's that's we've gone through the referral information we've presumably got a medical history although not all, not always like from, from a you know a formal referral from a doctor that's super helpful um doesn't always come to us that way sometimes it just comes to us with a person making a call so it's fairly we come in with limited information so we need to apply all of the information we get against the assessing fitness to drive guidelines issued by Osroads, um which in, in a way, it does make it easy because there's there's some pretty clear lines drawn in the sand. We'll have a look at, um, so the pre-on-road screening does include things like we'll ask for what medications people are on, obviously looking for some of those medications that will, you know, that will impact driving performance. Driving history, it's, you know, it's, it's important to note whether someone's had accidents and whether they were recent and whether they were at fault. 
will then have a, to do a visual screening. And with, with any of the visual screening, if, if there are concerns raised with that, um, I have been known to stop the assessment and, and not go on road pending an ophthalmology review. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, just a brief screening for other visual conditions like um, strabismus or glaucoma. And then we do a physical screening. So that's looking at, you know, we do muscle testing, motor strength, um, sensory function. So that's like a tactile discrimination test to just just see how, you know, how they're actually receiving the information, the, the sensory input. We'll have a look at um, reaction times, functional balance and mobility. There's, there's, there's a battery of tests where we actually just get people to simulate the task of driving. And sometimes, particularly someone might um, come with a, you know, a diagnosis of dementia or it might even be something physical and they might have had, had a mini stroke and they, they could, sometimes we get some weird and wonderful uh, sensory deficits that put a question mark. And, 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 and often it's, it serves to allow me to focus in on what, I, what, what I'm looking for when they're on road and how that might impact someone's driving performance. How do you test someone's reaction time? I'm just interested to know how you do that. We, we simulate an accelerator and brake. So that's a lower limb reaction time test and just get them to accelerate and then brake, accelerate and brake and, and do that in quite a random way. There's also like a coordination test. That it's, it's the fingertip to nose test. So it's also start-stop. So it's fairly basic. But it does provide good information at a at a you know at a basic or crude level to then you know flag what needs to be looked at closely in an on road and and even to inform whether whether the person's safe to proceed to an on road because because there will occasionally be people where um, it becomes very clear very quickly that it's inappropriate for them to proceed to an on road. Um, I, I would actually tend to allow that person in a very very quiet place with a driving instructor who's fully aware that I have major concerns and, you know, something like a, a car park or a back street where there's no traffic to just allow them to have a go in the on-road to then be able to say, these are the problems and this is why we can't go forward from here because people find it very hard to accept a, an outcome of you're unfit to drive if they haven't actually got behind the wheel. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we go, you know, or through the whole assessment, we're looking at cognitive function and communication as a um, just as a presentation. Um, but there is also a formal cognitive assessment battery. As I said before, setting up the appointment in the first place is great information. There's a driving specific battery that's uh, it's probably about ten years old now. It's called Drive Safe, Drive Aware. It's evidence-based and it is quite predictive of driver safety. The the great thing about it is it has two components. One component is uh, looking at um, working memory and and it also is is around speed of information processing too. So it's a series of slides which have the same driving environments around about with various vehicles and pedestrians and bikes on it. And the, uh, the person being tested looks at the slide, they get three seconds to look at it, and then when the screen goes blank, they have to recall what they saw. There's a few bits of information about each thing, what they saw, where it was, and what direction it's going. Is it left or right, which helps with the the stroke stuff, any neglects. And then the second test is drive aware, and that's about someone's self 
there's a series of questions and what it, what it measures is insight. So you're measuring an actual cognitive capacity around working memory and speed of information processing and then marrying that against the person's self-perception of their capacity. And the two together, uh, it's, it's actually a great assessment battery. The two together is quite predictive of, of driver safety and obviously there's thresholds where someone is deemed to be completely safe, someone is deemed to be completely unsafe, and then there's a grey area which indicates further testing. Like always when uh, speaking with people who are expert in their fields around the care of people living with dementia, I'm always a little bit humbled by how little I know. And uh, I've worked with Matt on and off over the years because he's the local OT driving assessor. And actually, I had so little idea about what he actually did when I referred people to him for an OT driving assessment. So, uh, Marita, I might start with you. What what were your takes from Matt's summary of what he does as an OT driving assessor? I mean, I kind of sat there thinking, geez, I hope I don't ever have to have an OT assessment for my driving because it's so detailed, right? And it just makes me really feel that it's a big ask for us in a general practice to try and make some of those assessments, isn't it? It's no wonder it's one of those things that GPs really feel very um, concerned about their ability to be able to say, is someone able to drive? Because there's just so much that the OT assessment is doing. I, I think one of the big take-homes for me, though, was probably to try to frame it in a really positive regard as, a, as opposed to a negative, that it really is an opportunity for the person to really, you know, get a good sense of the areas that they might need some improvement on to be able to continue driving as opposed to, you know, this is something that is probably going to say you can't drive at the end of the day. Yeah, that's what I took from it. I think it's it's all in the selling of, of the reason behind it. And I think helping people to understand that it's not necessarily going to be, you know, immediately having your license taken away, um, but that you could perhaps learn a bit more about safety on the road is a much better way to discuss the process of having a driving assessment. And now listening to all the things that they do, I'd feel better able to explain to patients what's going to happen. It's not just like a driving test. It's a comprehensive assessment of everything, you know. And actually, I had a patient last week who described her GP doing those reaction times of the acceleration and brake. I've never done that myself. And she was caught quite off guard by it and found it quite Actually, it caused her quite a lot of anxiety. And I guess it probably would if a GP had never done that before and then started asking you to do those reaction times of pushing on the pedal kind of thing. But obviously, it varies as to how detailed GPs' assessments of driving can be. And I suppose that's something else I've learned from this, that there are lots of other tools that you might want to use um, that might be helpful. How do you see the OT driving assessment process differing from someone being sent off to the licensing authority to get checked by the, the, the licensing body? Yeah, so my experience of that has been that I think the licensing body it tends to be quite a um, um, much more minimal kind of assessment. So it is just to kind of take you out. In fact, 
one of the people that I've spoken to said that the assessment for her was, right, we're going to take you out at three o'clock in the afternoon and we're going to take you on familiar roads. So, you know, we want to see how you go driving around your, your normal environment. And so for the week before her daughter turned up and took her out every day at three o'clock, um, so that there was some preparation for it. But that was the limit of the assessment. It didn't involve a comprehensive visual fields assessment, neurological examination, cognitive assessment battery before you go out on the road. And even, as he said, the process of ringing up, speaking to somebody before the appointment and and allowing them time to you know, talk about their concerns and then book the appointment, all of that forms part of the assessment process. Whereas with a licensing um, driving assessment, it's much less detailed. And Marita, we do talk about uh, doing physical examinations uh, when we're assessing people for dementia. That's that's part of the assessment. I'm just wondering, have you thought about examining people's cars to give you some clues about their driving safety? Yeah, that's a really good point, actually. And I remember um, working with a patient many years ago now and asking about the car when the family were were all in there as well, because we we were were really worried about her driving and just asking, you know, are there any dings on the car anywhere? And in fact, there were no um, side mirrors. They'd been knocked off. There wasn't one panel that didn't have some kind of dint in it from the accidents that that this woman had had. And in fact, the son-in-law said that he'd gone to fill the car up with petrol and the the guys at the petrol station said, gee, that's the straightest that car's come in for a long time. So you can learn a lot about the person's driving by being being able to eyeball the the car or, or ask people, you know. I can't remember where I heard this, but I think um, somebody was telling me about another example of how the person coming into the parking in the car park in the GP surgery and then couldn't couldn't get their car out of the space that they'd got them in or or the other way around. And so that was alerting the other staff uh, that there was a concern as well. So even other members of your staff might notice things about other people's driving when they come into the, the car park. It's such a difficult topic to talk about with people because people fear the loss of their license that they will say that that their driving is fine and they don't have any concerns and it's not until you get perhaps the collateral historian on their own or an independent opinion and that you actually find out that that their driving isn't as good as they said it was. Yeah, it reminds me of another patient actually who had figured out that he always forgot where he parked his car and so he used to pay the trolley boy (laughs) to remind him where his car was parked. And I guess some of those things, you know, it's amazing what you can get out of the history, isn't it, about what other skills people are using to compensate for some of their deficits, but does give you a bit of an insight into, you know, what's going on and how they may be able to manage the complexities of driving a car and parking a car. And one of the things is working as a GP in a rural area where public transport is virtually non-existent is particularly in couples, uh, in my experience, where the the husband or the man has always been the driver and, and oftentimes the, the woman doesn't even have a license. And if the man's getting a dementia, it's very difficult to contemplate them 
not having a driver. And often the woman will become the eyes and the ears and the navigator and guide. So they work together as a team, much like your patient, Marita, worked in combination with the the trolley boy in the car Mm. park. Mm. I I was interested, Matt said just at the end of that first snippet, how that some people are deemed to be completely safe on the pre-road test, some are deemed completely unsafe. And then there's a grey area which indicates that um, further testing might be necessary. So why don't we have a listen as Matt talks a little more about the further testing that he does for people that are in that grey zone. I normally have a pretty good sense of how someone's going to be before we get on road from that package, including the visual screening, the the, the, the physical function screening and the cognitive screening. And, and um, by the way, I'm also looking for how someone fatigues. So we've kind of put them through the ringer a little bit. Uh, this process can take anywhere from sort of an hour, hour and a half upwards to you know, to three three or so hours, depending on how someone performs. So it, it's it's a great way of actually testing someone's endurance as well. Which is, of course, important because people come at their best time, you know, and they're all ready to go. It's like when they come to the doctor as well, they come in the morning and if you see them in the afternoon, things aren't always quite so good. So that's great that you test for fatigue. You mentioned earlier about uh, one of the deficits that can occur with the dementia is a, a loss of insight. How can that impact on a person's safety or capacity to drive? Dementia can result in a lack of insight and self-awareness and, and self-regulation for that matter. So someone might be approaching a threshold of being unfit to drive or they may be unfit to drive and really be quite unaware of it. It, it does pose a clinical management challenge because some people after a driving assessment might feel that they did fantastically or at least adequately and um, the OT driving assessment and the driving instructor are of the opposite opinion um, and, and have clear evidence and when presented with that clear evidence the drivers particularly you know they're not actually able to apply that feedback to themselves in an insightful way then they actually are quite resistive to having their license either downgraded or um, or cancelled, and don't understand the reason why. It can be quite quite traumatic and unpleasant for them, and it just, um, in, in my experience, the best way of dealing with it is as compassionate as possible to the person who's about to lose their license, and um, to support the family because the family are the ones who are going to be, uh, you know, holding the person and helping them adjust through through a, a, a tough life period. It is indeed a, a tough life period, and that's that's beautiful what you said, Matt, about um, the compassionate approach. I remember one of my patients, who uh, the geriatrician actually took his or license off him for one of better words said he was unfit to drive and this gentleman could hardly remember everything but for years he remembered that bad doctor who took his license off him so that was such a big thing so it is really impactful so i'm just interested also matt so this thing about insight and uh, a person thinking that perhaps they've performed better than what they might actually have uh, that lack of insight is a 
definitely a feature of dementia. But have you noticed in the aging population generally, other older people, perhaps without a diagnosis of dementia, whether um, that lack of insight is, is also a feature or a person's ability to self-assess their performance. Does, does that occur across the board or is it more significant in someone with a dementia? It's definitely more significant in someone with a dementia, but the human brain has a, an amazing capability to renegotiate reality across a variety of fields, not just driving. Generally speaking, if someone, even if someone's aged, if their vision's good, if their cognitive function's good, physical function's good, you know, age appropriate, what what would tend to see, they there may be safety concerns around their driving, but that would tend to be more around their bad driving habits. So having not been taught to check blind spots when they were younger, having just developed bad habits over the years. And in in that population, that they there's a, a much greater potential for a driver rehab process to really extend their years of driving if there's no underlying pathology. So yeah, yeah, it it's, can be a really positive thing for um, for some older drivers, particularly ones that don't have a, a progressive um, you know condition like dementia. What about when you do the on road assessment? And I'm particularly interested. You mentioned about having a driving instructor in the car as well. So if you could talk a little bit about that, Matt, that'd be really helpful. Legally, the the assessment needs to occur in a dual control vehicle. Usually the OT driving assessor is in the rear left and there's a driving instructor in the passenger seat and the driver is is obviously in the driver's seat. So what we do is we will always start in in a quiet environment. We'll always go through a setup process and part of the assessment is actually can you set this, you know, you set this car up how it's safe and comfortable for you. So we're looking for people to adjust mirrors, adjust the seat, where are the gears. You know, in, these days cars have some of those secondary functions in weird and wonderful places. And a typical complaint of people will be, oh, well, this isn't, I, I can drive well in my car, just not in other cars. And that, that's where we gently explain that this is also part of the assessment because their licence allows them to drive any car, any automatic car or whatever their restrictions might be. So the, I guess the other thing that's important to say at this point is, and, and this, this is a point uh, of contention for some people, often particularly with dementia, when the medical certificate is uh, completed by the GP and forwarded to R- the RMS medical unit, often, and this is at the discretion of the RMS, often their licence is downgraded to, to a learner's permit, which has a condition that they may only drive with a licensed driving instructor. So the idea of that is to stop them from driving until they have the OT driving assessment because there has been, uh, I guess, a question mark flagged that their driving needs to be assessed. So often people will come with a little bit of a grumble about that. So in terms of the actual on-road, as assessors, we break up the driving performance into five areas, observation, speed control, planning and judgment, vehicle positioning, and reaction time and physical control. So there's often some overlap. So, for example, if someone's either going above or below the speed, that, that's obviously speed control. But often there's a, there's a cognitive component. So that might be an issue with planning or might be observation that they just actually haven't been paying attention to, to road signs, to the speed limit. And it's, it's a way of breaking down a performance so we can articulate where the problems lie. 
in their driving performance. And, and as I mentioned before, sometimes it's, it's really clear cut either way, if someone's fit or not fit. When someone presents in a, in a grey area and, and they're generally safe but, you know, may, perhaps not paying a, as much attention as we'd like or they're not checking blind spots so they'll just be changing lanes and if there was, you know, not knowing whether or not someone's just behind them, that is often a trigger to, to make a recommendation of a driver rehab program. And that might consist of something like five to ten lessons with the, with the driving instructor targeting the issues that were seen in the OT driving assessment. And, and they're asked to perform things like, you know, mirror indicator blind spot checks. If they do that well, then there's a good chance they, they'll have a successful result or we may still recommend some restrictions such as only drive in daylight hours between dawn and dusk. Um, a geographical restriction is a pretty common one as well. And, and often we'll review them at the end of the um, driver rehab sessions to just, just see whether they've got it or not, particularly if it's, if it's still in the grey area. And if someone is clearly demonstrating that they're not able to um, remediate their driving at all and they do have a degenerative process such as dementia, then that's when we'd be looking at cessation of driving. When you do your OT training and specifically the OT driving assessor training, how much training do you get on dementia? It's well over 20 years for me now since I was an undergrad OT student. But, yeah, look, there's a significant component on, um, on age-related processes and, and dementia. There is no, there's no driver training as an undergraduate. That's a postgraduate certificate. So the OT driver training course does go into a lot of the main conditions that we'll see, and that tends to be things like um, dementia, stroke, any kind of traumatic um, injuries, including brain injuries and, and, and physical injuries, spinal cord injuries, lots of the developmental disorders. So, so that's, that's fairly comprehensive about how, how those conditions will functionally impact the task of driving. Matt, one of the things that we have spoken about in the podcast earlier is saying to a person when they get a diagnosis of dementia, uh, what's the effect of your days as a driver are numbered or are going to be limited by this dementia as a, as a way of introducing the concept of planning for retiring from driving, just like we help other people retire from working. What sort of things can we do to help people plan to retire from driving? Great question. It's a tricky one, particularly regionally. As you know, public transport's you know, not always available. And some people don't have families, so that can be difficult. But there, there are um, subsidies for, for taxis. Um, there's also a couple of programs that have actually targeted people who have, have ceased driving and go through a range of options. It starts with, with a bit of a counselling process and then goes through options for things like community transport and public transport and, and other options. Unfortunately, it is, it is inherently limiting in a rural area. So, yeah, it, it's a bit tricky. I guess it's about finding out the person's natural resources around them, including family and where they live. Um, if they're in a bigger regional area, they may have access to public transport. Their neighbours might be able to help. They, they might actually be able to, to get a scooter to, if they're safe to do so, to travel to their GP, which might only be, you know, a kilometre down the road, but they can't walk that distance. 
So there, there's a few options. It remains a big issue though. Particularly, as you say, in rural areas. So Matt, because of the the difficulty in terms of accessing OT driving assessors, are there some patients that you think we should really encourage or push towards uh, OT driving assessment earlier rather than later? Like who are the people that would benefit the most from it? You know, I think an early dementia is probably a, a, a prime example of where an OT driving assessment can be quite effective because they would still potentially have the capacity to learn and remediate their driving. So we can upskill them and introduce some uh, some some driving strategies that they actually never would have learned in the first place when they first learned 50 years ago. And, and it, it, as part of that process, there may also be some restrictions to just create a little bit of safety around making sure that they won't be driving to Sydney in one day or, you know, they'll just stay in their area and they'll drive during the day, et cetera. And then based on that, the GP will have an idea of, from the OT driving assessment report, they'll have a, an idea of their their actual functional capacity to drive. And it makes it a little bit easier to marry it up with seeing the changes that the person has over, you know, the years after that, knowing how they were at a certain point in time. And, and it, I imagine it might make it a bit easier when you have someone sitting on the other side of your desk in the GP clinic to go, oh, you know, things have changed for you. I'm, and, and I know that that was a little bit borderline back then. So now I have a, you know, I've got a bit of a concern about this. Certainly that makes it a lot easier. And then we can work together, the OT driving assessor and the GP and the patient and their family to help that process of moving towards retirement from driving. Matt, thanks so much for your time today. It's been, I've learned a lot. And uh, I always think if I learn one new thing every day and I give myself Sundays off and public holidays off. I'm going to learn 300 new things a year. And at my age, that's pretty good. So uh, I've learned some things today, which is great. Thanks, okay. Matt. Thanks, everyone. There was indeed so much to learn from that interview today. We touched on the last part of the conversation about difficulties with accessing OT driving assessors. And Steph, I wonder if I could ask you about the sort of things that you might do in your practice when assessing someone's driving that might help you almost uh, triage who needs to go and see an OT driving assessor and who doesn't need to see an OT driving assessor. Yeah, so I, I mean, how I approach it is by having a conversation, first of all, about how does the person feel driving is going and whether they've already taken any steps to themselves limit their driving. Because I think you find as people age, or my experience is that the people that I've spoken to, they will say things like, when I go out, I don't go on the busy roads anymore, or I only kind of drive in local traffic, or I only drive during the day, or I only drive with somebody else in the car. It might not be all of those things, but I think when you start to have that kind of change in the way that you drive, then I say to people, well, I think that's kind of reflects maybe that you 
you know, some of those other environments, driving environments might be more challenging, perhaps because of eyesight, perhaps because it's busy and there's lots more things that you have to take, be aware of when you're driving. And so this might suggest that as this is changing, that maybe so your confidence in driving is changing, I guess, and talk about it in that respect. And then in terms of practicalities, I think there are a few things you can do to assess somebody's cognition. It doesn't have to be a mini mental state, but one of my colleagues here in Adelaide, he does the trail A and B test. He does that now with every um, person that he sees who's, you know, over the age of 65 and having their driving medical. And so again, it's a destigmatizing thing by saying, well, we do this with everybody. It's not, I've not singled you out, but I'm, I do this as a routine practice. And you start to then gain some idea about how somebody's functioning. If they're, if they're able to do the trail A and B, then usually everything's sort of okay. It's only part of the assessment, but it gives you some reassurance. And actually a colleague of mine in practice started doing this after I mentioned it. And he picked up somebody who had an early dementia with that test the um, trail A and trail B tests, I wasn't aware of till I started doing this work, which is one of the good reasons for doing this sort of work. And we will include some information about those tests in the show notes for this episode, as well as a link to an article in the Canadian Family Physicians Journal, which is a very good guide to what GPs can do when assessing someone for driving within their practice that can help in terms of triaging who can drive, who needs an OT driving assessment and who absolutely can't drive. Now, Marita, just a question for you without notice. I know you're a big fan of the clock drawing test. I wonder how you've used the clock drawing test when thinking about your patient's ability to drive or what you've noticed? Yeah, I think um, like everything with dementia, there's just, you know, no clear-cut test is there. But the the clock face, I think, gives us so much information because it does um, help us sort out how someone's um, planning is, for example, their visual-spatial awareness. So I think you can get a lot of information from a clock-drawing test. But I'm just going back to that with the trail-making tests. I've had patients who can't do a clock face but can go through that trail-making test without any problem whatsoever. I guess from listening to Matt, one of the things I think may be useful in the GP setting is perhaps looking at the drive safe, drive aware, because that will definitely help triage who needs to go and have an OT assessment. Mm. And I looked into it recently for my own practice and um, you can buy bundles of you know, the tests that people can do on, on an iPad and um, perhaps when they come in. So the people that you might have not been able to have that conversation with, but you might have some concerns or finding it difficult to assess, um, then you can use that as perhaps a screening tool. And it's not that expensive. It worked out at $15 per test. So I'm sure that that's a useful use of money, I guess, before you go on to then commit to the the thousand dollars or whatever it is for a private OT driving assessment. And by the way, now I can totally see where all that money goes because um, it takes a, a, a long time and it's not just one assessment, it's several assessments. There was so much positive though in what Matt had to say, wasn't there? So the idea of um, tapping into someone's natural resources. I really liked that, you know, because there are often 
people around. I've got some elderly um, patients who their neighbours always bring them in for their appointments. And so our patients do have those resources that perhaps we're not aware of. And it also really brought home to me again the importance of that timely diagnosis because, as Matt said, there is that opportunity for people to upskill and learn things perhaps they've never learned and perhaps that will mean they can drive for a little bit longer. Mm. He also spoke about compassion, didn't he? And I thought that was really important. It's also about the delivery of the message. And the other thing I thought was really good was if he thinks that somebody isn't going to be able to pass the on-road assessment or he doesn't feel comfortable taking that person out on the on-road assessment he would take them into a quiet car park and get them in behind the wheel of the car so that they can have a look at the reasons why he wasn't confident to take them on the road and and I sometimes when I'm doing an assessment you know trying to assess whether somebody does have a diagnosis and the person themselves doesn't feel they have any particular cognitive issues but then when we start doing the cognitive assessment for example it might crop up that they do have problems with fluency for example it can be helpful to then use that as feedback to explain to somebody why you've come to the diagnosis or the reasoning behind what you've come to because it's a kind of examples so that people think that you have thought about it you haven't just decided you know on a whim that they can't drive or that they have this diagnosis without taking into consideration the the things that they might be struggling with so maybe the take-home message for me around this interview with matt is that we should change its title from ot driving assessor to ot driving enabler to help get away from the stigma that comes from going along. And as as you said, Marita, to help encourage a timely diagnosis so people can go and see the OT driving enabler early in their journey with dementia while they still have the capacity to learn the skills that will allow them to keep driving for longer. Yeah, absolutely. That's certainly what I'm taking home from this as well. I went to a presentation a few months ago about actually thinking about the car that people drive and, you know, how safe is the car. Um, So, you know, modern cars now have lots of safety features such as airbags and other things that protect us when we're driving. And perhaps that's a conversation that we could have with our patients about, you know, have they updated their car recently and, you know, made sure that it's safe for going on the road. And then in the last few weeks here in Adelaide, there's been a campaign to kind of highlight the significant proportion of people who are in the older population that actually, you know, lose their lives whilst driving and also are um, perhaps involved in having more serious injuries. And actually, it wasn't about the fact that um, they're involved in more crashes. It, It tends to be that older drivers tend to be more cautious and have less undesirable driving. Their, their driving is okay. But when they have an accident, the consequences seem to be more serious. And so this advertising campaign was aimed at reducing that stigma by allowing people and their families to kind of have a conversation around driving and looking at how they might be changing their driving behaviours or perhaps whether or not further assessment was needed or things that might cause additional stress for people in terms of the the sort of environments that they're driving in. So I think it is something that's affecting the whole of the population, um, but obviously more impactful for people who are experiencing dementia. And I think that whole community involvement, it reflects back on the stress that this puts on us as GPs, because mostly 
in the patients we care for, where they're as an advocate or an agent for the person sitting in front of us. But when we're asked to assess someone's capacity to drive, it's, it's partly the safety of the person sitting in front of us, but it's in addition, the safety of the wider community. And that does put us in slightly unfamiliar and slightly uncomfortable situation. And perhaps that's where some of the stress arises for us too. So having people like Matt and other OT driving assessors around to help share that community safety load, I think is, in, is, is very helpful. So we might wrap up that conversation for today. And Steph, I know you've got a very exciting episode coming up for us next time on Dementia in Practice. Oh, yes. On the next episode, I'll be finding out more about well-being directives. So it's a new take on advanced care directives, that things that we perhaps haven't thought about before. Yeah, look, this is such an interesting uh, and important area. You know, in medicine, we're always trying to take a holistic approach to the health and well-being of our patients. But what does that really mean for people living with dementia who perhaps have lost the ability to communicate their needs? How can we help people plan ahead? I'm very interested to hear how we can do that. And in the meantime, if you want more resources, head to our website, dta.com.au slash GP, or follow Dementia Training Australia on Facebook or at Dementia Train AU on Twitter. Thanks, Marita and Steph, for your insights today and uh, see you all next time. If you're a person living with dementia, or if you're a family member or carer of someone living with dementia, Dementia Australia has some great resources. The National Dementia Helpline is 1800 100 500, or you can visit dementia.org.au. Dementia in Practice is an initiative of Dementia Training Australia, which is funded by the Australian Government.